You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. After this, I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately, I was in the spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone. A rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. Four living creatures, covered with eyes in front and in back, were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night they never stop saying, Holy, 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 Lord God the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honour and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so we're in week four of our, what is probably going to be 15 weeks uh, running through the book of Revelation. We're going to break it up a little bit. uh, And so this will take us through to Advent at the end of November. Uh, If you're catching up on where we've been the last few weeks, you can either find the messages online on our website or there's a series guide out there in the foyer if you want to get some background to where we've been and where we're going. Um, Last week, looking at those seven churches of Asia Minor um, has me thinking so much about our own church and how much I want our church to be like the church in Smyrna or Philadelphia, the churches that Jesus just commended um, and, uh, and the churches that were remaining faithful. Um, I spent this last week at a conference for the Diocese of Melbourne 
and there is a lot of talk about how many churches there are in our city that are on the brink of closing, um, they're not financially viable or they don't have a, a minister to, to, to lead them and uh, it was kind of depressing to be honest. Um, the, the, the posture of the conference was positive. They were really encouraging us to reimagine ministry and to, um, to be bold in leading churches into the future. There was a lot of talk about having a five-year vision for your church that sort of mobilizes uh, people to be engaged, just as James was encouraging us before. I, I found myself thinking, you know, I don't, I don't have a five-year vision for our church i got a hundred-year vision. That's what I've got. I want, I, I want our church in a hundred years from now to be making all of life all about Jesus. I'm sure they're going to they're have a cooler vision statement than that, um, but I, I, I hope it's going to be true nonetheless, that like a hundred years from now, when Matilda's the only one still here, right, and we're all dead, that's what I want. I want, I want a, a, a generational legacy of faithfulness to Jesus. I want him to be able to look at this church and commend it like he did some of those churches way back in Asia Minor in, in modern-day Turkey. That's, that's my heart for this place. I want to begin this morning... Before we get to the throne room of God and John's vision of it, I want to begin by going to an Old Testament story which I think helps shed some light on one of the big purposes of the book of Revelation, the book of revealing, the book of unveiling. And, um, and I want to go to 2 Kings chapter 6, all right? And here you've got uh, the king of Aram, a nation nearby Israel, um, who is who is waging war against Israel. And he wants to do two things. He wants to besiege the city and take it. He wants to conquer Israel, just like everyone else on the face of the earth, it seems. Um, but he specifically wants to capture Elisha, the prophet Elisha. Um, because Elisha is like, because of his prophetic insight, he is um, giving intelligence to the king of Israel that is helping them overcome the nations around them. So it's strategic. They want to get rid of the, the main intelligence guy, the, the prophet Elisha. And so they send this enormous army to surround the city and to capture Elisha. And, and, and if you want to pull up 2 Kings chapter 6, here's what happens. When the servant of Elisha, the man of God, got up early and went out, he discovered an army with horses and chariots surrounding the city. So he asked Elisha, oh my master, what are we to do? And Elisha said, don't be afraid, for those who are with us outnumber those who are with them. And here's the point. Then Elisha prayed, Lord, please open his eyes and let him see. So the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw the mountain was covered with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That's the purpose of the book of Revelation. It's an apocalypse, which just means a, a revelation, an unveiling. The, the purpose of John writing this book, well, in fact, Jesus telling him what to write, is to unveil our eyes, just like he did for 
Elisha's servant. He wants us to see that which is unseen. He wants us to see the unseen powers that are all around us, both those of darkness and those of light. But ultimately, he wants us to be reassured that those who are with us outnumber those who are against us. He's writing, remember, to very persecuted Christians, a minority in the Roman Empire who were being put to death, imprisoned because of their faith. And so he wants them to know those who are with you in the heavenly realms outnumber those who are against you. That's why Jesus said to John, remember last week, the week before last, when Jesus himself was unveiled, he said to him, do not fear. Do not fear. Those who are with us outnumber those who are against us. This is exactly what Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul said to the suffering Christians in Corinth in a very similar situation to those in Asia Minor, right? They are, they are in the minority. They are living under a, an oppressive Roman government that does not have any... Um, does not have any tolerance for their views about who Jesus is. And so Paul writes to them in 2 Corinthians and he says, our momentary light affliction, (laughs) death, prison, is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen but what is unseen. What is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That's what John's trying to get us to see in this book. What is unseen is what is eternal. That's the thing that we need to focus on. And this morning, we're going to focus on this vision, the second vision that John has, a vision of the throne room of God, the very kind of center of heaven itself. So... Let's jump into it. First verse, I want you to follow along as we work through this. In verse 1 of chapter 4, John says, After this I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Come up here. I was talking to the musos this morning and saying this could be our kind of mission statement for definitely for the the music ministry, but probably just for our Sunday gatherings, right? Our Sunday worship services, the byline should be come up here. That's the whole purpose of our meeting together. We get all of these side benefits like hanging out together and having good conversation and drinking good coffee and all of these things, but... The main purpose is to come up, to, to, to come up out of the here and now and to see God on the throne. That's the purpose. Every song that we sing should serve that purpose of lifting us up to see God for who he is, who he really is. And you're going to see in the response that those who see him have that that should be our response as well. Praise and worship, adoration. Come up here. Now, what does he see? That's in verse, well, we'll begin at 2 to 4. 
He says, immediately I was in the spirit. Remember, that lets us know he's having a, a new vision. So this is his second vision. It goes for most of the book. Immediately I was in the spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their head. I don't want to get bogged down too much in the imagery. If you you get too bogged down in the imagery, and I think some people look at these, the images that John paints here, and they think it's like a kind of, you remember those magic eye paintings or pictures where if you're meant to stare at this weird picture for long enough, you saw the actual 3D image within it. Some of you are too young for this. Um, I told a kid earlier this week that I was 42. They basically thought I was about to die, all right? So I know I... Uh, so, so anyway, it's, that's not the book of Revelation. Um, the, the point of what he's saying here is not that we take each of his descriptions and try and figure out the hidden meaning behind them. Basically, he is overwhelmed. And if you've ever been in a situation where you're just overwhelmed, whenever you try to describe it, you are lost for words. And that, that, that's John's position here. Remember, he's just a man. He's a man exiled on an island with not much going on, and he's suddenly been given this incredible vision. And so he pulls on imagery that he knows from the Old Testament. Much of this is sort of echoes of Old Testament prophetic visions, apocalypses, and, and, and just stuff from within his own brain that is an attempt to describe what he sees. The point is, what he sees is magnificent. That's what you need to know. What he sees is just sheer magnificence. That's why he says it, it was like this, and it was like this, and, and it's, it's, like, it's like this color, and it's like this stone, and it's like this, this rainbow. The rainbow obviously has a clear symbolism, which is, goes back to Noah, God's covenant with his people. It's a covenant of grace, mercy, forgiveness. Right in the very throne room, there's this constant and eternal reminder of his grace, mercy, and forgiveness. He goes on to describe 24 thrones and 24 elders. We don't know exactly what this is uh, referring to, but probably it's meant to represent all of God's people for all of time. You've got the 12 tribes of Israel plus the 12 apostles. You get this later on in the book, we'll see towards the end of the year with the New Jerusalem. It's featured there and described a little bit more in detail. But 12, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, put them together and you have Old Covenant, New Covenant, people of God. And I think it's just meant to represent all of us, everyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus, everyone who confesses him as Lord is assembled there around the throne. The point is, and this is the only point you really need to take away from this whole sermon, this whole passage, the point is that the throne is in the center of everything. God is at the center of everything. And all of creation, we're going to see this spreads out to include all of creation, is around the throne, surrounding the throne. 
That's what John wants you to know. At the center of the universe and human history and salvation history and of eternity itself, God is on his throne, which speaks of his power and his centrality in all things. He is unrivaled, supreme, sovereign. That's who he is. I'm sure you've experienced what I have experienced many times and for varying lengths of time, but a sense of sheer disorientation in your life where we do all that we can under the um, misapprehension that we actually are in control of our life. We do all we can to arrange our life with some semblance of predictability and rhythm. But there are times in life and situations that bring forth just utter disorientation. You feel like you don't know which way is up and down. You're scrambling around to find some sense of guidance or direction, but really the compass has been scrambled. You have no points of reference anymore. You are disorientated. This isn't always because you have forgotten that God is at the throne or you have neglected to put him there in his rightful place. But one thing I know is that in order to find orientation in the midst of chaos, you must begin with the throne room of God. You must make sure that in your own mind, in your own conception of yourself and the world around you, that God is at the center. This is not like a self-help life hack thing. This isn't like, well, if you need more control in your life, then put God at the center. This is just reality. He is at the center. And the reason so often we are disorientated is because we've forgotten that. It's not that he no longer is. It's that we no longer acknowledge him as being at the center of all things. My experience in my apparently very long life is that there's only one way to find orientation in life. It's not through having better productivity practices or a better handle on your calendar. It's not by setting five and ten year goals. It's by putting the throne room of God at the center of everything. I want to read you a quote which I just find so immensely beautiful and well written. It is a little bit hard to grasp, but I'm going to read it anyway and, um, and just, yeah, just see what you make of this. It's by Edmund Clowney. He says, Worship is a meeting at the centre so that our lives are centred in God and not lived eccentrically. Eccentric just means off-centre. If someone's eccentric, it's just they're a bit unbalanced, all right? So so that our lives are lived in God and not lived eccentrically. We worship so that we live in response to and from this center, the living God. He goes on. Failure to worship consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks at the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, every siren. Without worship, we live manipulated and manipulating lives. 
we move in either frightened panic or deluded lethargy as we are in turn alarmed by spectres and soothed by placebos. If there is no center, he says, there is no circumference. People who do not worship are swept into a vast restlessness, epidemic in the world with no steady direction and no sustaining purpose. That's a great quote. It's bettered only by a much more succinct quote, which is one of the best lines ever from St. Augustine. Hundreds and hundreds of years ago, he said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. That's what we, what we experience when we orientate our lives around the throne at the center of all things. We find rest. And without it, we are restless And you just ask yourself the question, is the world that we're living in, the culture around us, and our very selves, are we restful or restless? That's a rhetorical question. Now, back to the throne room. Let's see more of what he sees. Verse 5 to to 6. Flashes of lightning, he says, and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Remember, the seven spirits of God are just the Holy Spirit, uh, seven being the, the number of completion, perhaps of perfection. So it's, the Holy Spirit is there. And then he says, something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. What he sees there is something striking about God. It's a juxtaposition. It's, um, it's, it's peace in the midst of power. God is both peace and power simultaneously. God is immense power, frightening power, earth-shattering power. That's why there are rumblings and lightning and peals of thunder and a voice like a trumpet, all of these like images of, of power and of not just power but of um, things that affect in us like a sense both of smallness and of, of fear, grandeur. You got echoes of this from from Moses' encounter with God on Mount Sinai, right? When he receives the Ten Commandments, you have the same thing, lightning and smoke and peals of thunder, trumpets. You have this, if you've ever experienced anything that's been, that's, that has simultaneously frightened you and put you in your place, taken you down a few notches. Normally this happens when we're in the midst of some um, tumultuous environmental event, right? Either you're in a, you, maybe you've been at the, in the waves when they've been peaking. Huge swell makes you feel very small. Maybe you've been on the top of a mountain during a lightning storm or huge winds. Maybe you've experienced a cyclone or a hurricane. One of the most indelible memories I have was when I, Renee and I were dating and we were at her house 
and an enormous thunderstorm was raging and thunder and lightning and just powerful rain. I think it was the middle of summer, one of those summer storms. And her and I went out into her court out the front of her house and just laid down in the middle of the court and just looked up and, and, and we, were, we were awestruck. I went to our um, midweek gathering at church that week and uh, I got there late and the first thing I saw was a very upset woman who was running the service and she said to me, why weren't you here an hour ago? Are you ready to preach? And I was like, uh, what now? I... You mean like pre- preaching a sermon? And I apparently knew about this. It's almost certain that I had been told about it and briefed on it and been sent several emails about it, but I had no idea. And so reaching for something to say, I just kind of told the story of our encounter with this incredible storm, I don't know, the night before, and related it to being kind of an echo, a faint shadow of the power of God who sits on the throne. That's why the uh, rumblings are happening as John sees the throne. And yet, in the midst of that demonstration of power, there's also peace. Like, in God's presence, that it, it pacifies. And here you have, really, the, the only true Pacific Ocean, right? Whoever named it the Pacific had never seen it in the middle of, like we did a few years ago in Hawaii on the North Shore, where it's just absolutely crushing But here you have the only true Pacific Ocean. The sea surrounding or in front of the throne is like glass. Have you ever seen the sea like that? It's just like, just a mirror. Sea of glass representing peace in the midst of power. For the people of Israel, a desert people, the sea was representative of everything that was scary. The sea was chaotic and there were beasts that lived in the sea that could eat you and and enemies came to Israel from across the sea. Like the sea was a, a, a scary place. And yet here in front of the throne, in God's presence, the sea is like glass. It's like crystal. It's perfectly calm. If you've ever encountered God in a manifest way, you would have experienced both power and peace. It's enough to make you like the elders later on who fall down, just overwhelmed by God's presence. But every time you have a genuine interaction with God, there is a peace that passes understanding. Now, next he moves, just like the book of Genesis at the creation event, all right? This is, there's, um, it, it, it kind of rhymes or echoes Um, with this vision of John. Um, He moves from sky and sea to to all living creatures. So in verse 6 to 8, he says, Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and back were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. 
Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Now again, I think we can trip over these visions and which suddenly we're trying to figure out why he's chosen these animals. I've heard it's because they were sort of representative of the most powerful animals in creation or the most imperious or I don't know, I don't think it matters that much because I think both the, um, the fact that, that, that these creatures are there representing all living creatures, I think that's the point of it, that, that they are just representative heads of everything that lives. Again, following the pattern of Genesis, all, crea- all creation laid out before the throne of God. There's a mingling here of, of Old Testament images, from, both from Ezekiel's vision and of, of Isaiah's vision, cherubim and seraphim. It's all kind of just thrown in together and blended up, and this is what John sees. And I think that the only point that we need to take from it is that all creation is arranged, again, around the center, which is the throne of God. All creation exists to worship him. Holy, holy, holy. This is what they're saying is, you are not us. Holiness is other. It's, it's different to us. It's of a different order and magnitude. All of creation, when they see God, recognize that one central truth. He is not like us. He is higher than us. He is holy, pure, righteous. And so they praise him. It's the only response that we can have to an encounter with God and his holiness. Here's something that just occurred to me. I, th- I think this is why... I think this is why idolatry is so... Um, idolatry in the Bible is identified as being like a kind of madness. A kind of... Um, yeah, a kind of madness. It's, a, it's confused worship. Idolatry is confused worship. The Bible makes a lot of people who kind of in their insanity worship created things rather than the creator. That the creator of all things, including those idols, is here, available to us. Jesus says, remember in that last chapter, he says, um, See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The invitation is there from the living God for us to actually meet with him, eat with him, worship him. And yet, we, in our madness, turn to created things. And I know none of you are bowing down to statues made of wood or stone, probably. But we all do the idolatry thing. We all take created things and worship them. And by worship them, I mean we put them in the center where the throne room should be. That's the essence of idolatry. God gets moved out and we put in spouse or children or job or whatever, money, sex, power, 
and it's insane. It's madness. The thing that we are worshipping in that moment is worshipping God. And as we bow down to it, sacrifice to it, sacrifice money and ourselves and our family and relationships, we sacrifice these things to an idol that itself is worshipping God because all creation worships God together. It's madness. We weren't made to worship anything other than the living God. Even these creatures who, you know, if we saw them in the flesh, we would be tempted to bow down and worship them ourselves. Like, an, uh, like these creatures, the living creatures, any one of them, the lion or the ox or the man or the eagle, if you saw one at the, you know, in the kids room right now you'd be tempted just to fall down and worship that glorious being and yet even they spend all of their time they never stop day and night saying holy 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 lord god the almighty who was who is and who is to come and they go on let's read the final picture here verse 9 to 11 Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created this is meant to be a picture of our lives like even in the midst of busyness and chaos and full calendars and many worries and concerns plans and dreams and goals and visions in the midst of all of that there must be operating in the not even in the background in the center of all of these things a a a desire to keep god on his throne in the center the elders a representative of all of God's people, and we are called to follow them. That means falling down. That means acknowledging who God is and what he's done. So here's the takeaway. It's very practical. This is a vision of the throne room of heaven, but it has absolute application for the here and now. This present darkness, with all of its cares and confusion, I just want us as a church, as a family, this week, as we approach this week, as we, as we walk through this week, sometimes triumphant, sometimes stumbling as we follow 
Jesus through this week, we need to remember who is on the throne and where that throne is situated. God alone sits on the throne. And it is situated at the centre of the universe, never mind our lives. I want us to avoid disorientation. To avoid living eccentrically. I want us to step back. Maybe you could do, maybe you could make this as a little goal for this week. Just each morning, before you reach for your phone, each morning, step back into the throne room of God to remind yourself of the reality of the universe that you live in. Plant your feet in the throne room before you start each day. Remember who made you. Remember what you were made for. You have created all things, God. By your will they exist and are created. The only reason I'm standing here, breathing air, is because God has made me and he is allowing me. By his will they exist. Follow the elders, these 24 elders. Follow the creatures representative of all living things. Follow them by falling down daily before the only one who is worthy, the only one without rival. Burn your idols. Worship the only living God. I want to leave you with a quote from our friend Adam Ramsey. I noticed that his book is out there in the foyer, if anyone wants to borrow it, this book called Truth on Fire. And um, I just think this is a beautiful picture of God supreme. I'm going to read it and then pray for us. He says, the scriptures remind us that we are not in the hands of fate, chaos, devils, demons, or even ourselves, but in the secure hands of an infinitely sovereign and infinitely good God who is powerfully at work in everything for his glory. Sovereignty when wed to the limitless transcendence of God, does not merely mean best. It means unbeatable. He is wonderfully unworried by any potential challenger to his crown. The book of Revelation wants us to see that in reality. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant, John, who wrote this book for our benefit And I pray, Lord God, that as we work through it for the rest of this year, that you would continue to orientate us around the throne room. Lord God, as we look into next week and we see revealed for us Jesus, the lamb that was slain, I pray that you would usher us into a whole new level of intimacy with you, of gratitude, of thanksgiving, that we would know that you have done all things to secure us for eternity. 
And so may we live in this present day. May we walk through this week orientated around you. Indeed, making all of life all about Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Stay in your seats. Um, The ladies are going to sing for us and take this time to meditate on what you've heard. Maybe you want to read back through the passage during this time or just pray and ask God to really embed this in your hearts. Um, And then we will uh, uh, have Doug come and intercede for us. Turn.
Jesus, we turn around. 